We began looking at the subject of the 13, 13 uh, Ikrim, the 13 fundamentals or articles of faith that um, <coughs> the Rambam composed. And we said we tried to work through that, uh, that list of the 13 and understand as much as we can about it. So let's just put ourselves back into the, into the picture and by way of a very brief revision for those who have just joined us, we said this, that there are 13 so-called roots or fundamentals that the Rambam Maimonides uh, makes explicit in, his, in one, of his, one of his works, commentary to the Mishnah and Gemara. The most familiar statement of these 13 is the one that's just for convenience, we, we, we're using that, and that is a rephrasing of those 13 into sort of doctrinal or creedal statements. I believe with perfect faith. I believe with a perfect emunah. We'll have to, perhaps this evening, try to discuss, understand what emunah is. And then each one follows. That Hashem is the creator of the world and He's master of the world. That He alone was, is and will be the source and essence of all existence. The second, that He is single in absolute oneness. Thirdly, that he has no body or bodily representation, completely incorporeal. And fourth, that he's first and last. All of these need, obviously, a lot of discussion. And then, the rest of the 13 follow and build a picture of the foundations or fundamentals of, of Torah. The source of this, we, we pointed out, is um, that although the Torah doesn't contain doesn't seem to contain 13 things. There's no place in the Torah text, really, or in Scripture, or even in the Mishnah, that you'll find these 13 things listed. But I hope it's clear by now, from looking at the, the Rambam's Laws of Tshuva, Hilkos Tshuva, where he goes through the 13, um, let's say the converse, or the obverse of these things, which are the 13 things for which a person has no share in the world to come. Now, those transgressions, or those uh, transgressions in, in the world of these of these things, of these fundamental elements of knowledge or belief that can excise or dissociate a person entirely from a higher existence. So, in summary, these 13 are the positive statements of those negatives. Those negatives are found in the Mishnah, <coughs> of course. And the Raman codifies them, collates them and codifies them as 13 statements of things that are offenses to structures so vital in the spiritual body, or the Jewish spiritual being, let's say, that they sever one's connection to the spiritual world. Those are simply rephrased in the positive as I believe. The construction again is like this, that those 13 things are 13 offenses, 13 avarices or sins, transgressions, that, connect, that sever one's connection with the higher world. Those are rephrased here as the, well, the Rambam's more explicit or more, more detailed work, as being the positive statements. In other words, just like you do not want to transgress one of these 13 and be cut off from it from a higher world, so then to remain attached to them, re one reinforces these things. Okay, so these are the positive statements of those negatives. The source is there in the negative. But the result is that we have these 13. We try to show, and this is the concept to bear in mind all the way through our discussions, is that there are two visions, if you like, of what these 13 constitute. And that, the most, um, sort of the simplest to understand, or the most basic, which is that which is uh, discussed by the Bala Ikrim, another work who disagrees with the Rambam, is that he understands these 13 to be foundations of faith. Fundamentals, or, or the pillars of, of, of religion in general, let alone of Judaism. And on these foundations, the whole structure rests. The Rambam is not learning that these are fundamental to religion. In other words, the simple view is, that before you can discuss the concept of religion, meaning that there's a creator or master of the world and he gives instructions or commandments and you're obliged to follow them, there is, you, you need, before that system can be put into place, you need to know that there's a creator, that, that, that you have responsibility, that he commands you, and that there's consequences of observing or not observing those commandments. That is why these 13 exist. They are the framework or the structure that makes such a relationship possible. The Ramam's opinion is not like that. His, and we raised all the questions and difficulties with that approach, the Ramam's approach is that these 13 things are not fundamental in the sense that they make religion possible, although obviously they do that as well. 
This concept is a completely different, a much deeper concept. Yet these things carve out or create a spiritual space. These, these carve out or create the notion of what Torah and mitzvahs are. These things create, if you like, the space where the Jewish soul exists. Not only the possibility of religion, but the building of a higher world. You know, one beautiful way to see it, we didn't speak this out clearly, so let's try and look at it, is that what is the logic behind these 13? You go through these 13 things and you ask, what is the logic? Why, why are each of these present in the list? If you hold like the Bala Ikrim, then as, you, as he explicitly states, you don't need all 13. All you need is the notion of Hashem's existence, God's existence, the notion that He speaks to you, that Torah min Hashemayim, as we said, the Torah was given, and reward and punishment. That's all you need. You've said it all. Once you say that there is a source, He communicates with you and gives you a sense of your responsibilities, and that that's important and has consequences, what more do you need to say? That's completely adequate for the foundation of religion. So what are the rest of these 13 doing? But the Rambam's notion is that these 13 create a spiritual world. They attach you to a spiritual world. And if you go through them with that concept in mind, you notice right away that each of these form your connection to that world. The easiest way to see it is if you look at the source of these, which is the negative statements, you see that, that those are one's severing of oneself from a spiritual world. If you don't believe that Hashem exists, and the first four of them are really fundamental and essential elements of, of, of the notion, our notion of what Hashem is, is incorporeality, is absolute oneness, etc. If you don't have a share in that, that means if you, don't, if you deny that, then, then how do you have a share in that world? Your existence in that world is nothing other than your construction of that world. Our sense of the world to come is not that it's a, it's not a thing that's given as a reward for having done something else. Our notion of the world to come is it's simply the space or the reality, the essence that you've built for yourself. How do you build it? By living in it. Right? And therefore, if you don't, how can you possibly share in that? Never mind be given it as a reward. How, how can you possibly have a sense of the reality of that thing? And how can it be there for you? Or be you? If you deny its existence, not the next, the first one, that Hashem is the only one, only being, only existence to whom it is fitting, with whom it's fitting to deal, pray, serve, right? and no intermediaries are relevant. Well, again, you're relating to the source, that the words of all the prophets are true. There has to be communication, otherwise how can I enter that relationship and move there, etc. If you examine these, you'll see that all of them fulfill the criteria, fit the, fit the criterion of being elements of direct connection to that higher world. And that's, of course, why in the negative statement, these are nothing other than the severing or the cutting off of one's connection to that world. And therefore, again, in summary, these are nothing other than one's... the, 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 the elements of the belief structure, the monostructure, that is the forming of the channel between us and that higher existence. Now, let, let's try and look at the first of them this evening, or perhaps we can look at the first few in... in and subsume them in one, in one area. Hopefully we'll be able to, to go through the list completely and see, see, see what, how much we can understand of all of them. But the first of these, the first four specifically, which relate to Hashem's existence, the notion of Hashem's existence, one's belief in His existence, are four facets of the same idea. His existence, His absolute oneness, His incorporeality, and the fact that he transcends time, that he's first and last. These are, really, these are really different statements, different facets or angles of what we in English call the absolute. Uh, to be absolute, which means subsuming all else, that there's nothing, there's no, there can be no sense of existence greater than that, requires that he is one and incorporeal. Because if you're two, you can't be two and be infinite. Because, is that, I mean, that should be clear, right? If you're two, then where, you, where the one is, the other one is not. So automatically, when you break a thing below... One, or if it's a, a corporeal element, a physical element, even if it's only a diagram. A diagram is specific. It's whatever it is, it's not another diagram. So it's not absolute in everything. So these are all ways of expressing what we would, in English term, the notion of absoluteness. <coughs> this notion of Hashem's existence, which transcends everything else, is the root of this mitzvah. This expressed in mitzvah terms would be what we call emunah, faith. Let's discuss the first of the mitzvahs, which is the mitzvah of English word is the English word faith is inappropriate. So I'll try and show you, try and sh sh show that or, or share that with you. But for want of a better word, let's talk about faith. I think we ended off last week, if you remember, by pointing out that all thirteen are really nothing other than the establishing of a connection with Hashem's oneness. Right? If you remember, we said that the clue to that 
is that, first of all, I mean, before you get to clues, each one of these is a direct connection with that absolute oneness with which he begins. But the clue in it is that there are 13. And we, we tried to study together last week the idea that 13 is always a clue to a oneness. Right? 13 in Hebrew, for example, the gematria of the word echad adds up to 13. The word that says one in Hebrew has 13 elements. The word itself adds up to 13. All things that are, that are differentiated things that bond into one thing are 13. For example, the word love. The Hebrew word ahava, right? which, means, which means really giving. The word ahava is based on hav, which means to give. It was a complete giving right, of self to another, so that self is lost, so that the two become one, which is what really love drives towards, so the word Ava in Hebrew adds up to 13 as well. Right? And we pointed out many of these correlations. In other words, whenever you come across the idea of 13, I mean, the, the classical one in, in, in Kabbalistic thinking or in the Maral's thinking, is that the complete borders of a three-dimensional world are always 12, and the unity of them is the 13. A cube, which is the idealized expression of a three-dimensional world, a cube has 12 lines that surround it. What in the Kabbalistic works are called the yud base Kaveh Alachson, the 12 meridia of reality. A cube has the four, this room has four lines around the top, four lines around there, and the four lines that connect those two of twelve <coughs> limiting, yeah, the, 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 the limiting dimensions of a cube are twelve. The thirteenth, of course, is the fact that all those twelve bond into one thing. They're not twelve things that are dissociated from each other, right? The thirteenth is always the unifying place, the, the unifying element where, where twelve bond into one. And any time you find 13 things are not accidental, it is always an expression of oneness. The oneness that these 13 express is nothing other than the first one. Torah always works in such a way that the first contains all that comes thereafter, just like a conception contains all the genetic information that will be expressed throughout the process that comes thereafter. And therefore, all of these 13 are nothing other than facets of the same jewel, which is stated in essence in the first one, which is that Hashem exists that is the creator and master of the world and that he alone does did, does and will do everything that, ever, that is done right? his absolute existence so the mitzvah, if you, t- if you turn that notion into a mitzvah, it's the mitzvah of, em- of emunah, the mitzvah to for want of a better word to believe Let, let's try this evening to study that mitzvah and see see how much we can, we can understand together I mean, there are many questions. We'll only have time to begin the discussion. There are many questions relating to Emunah. The first, obviously, is uh, perhaps the most simple, is how it can be commanded. How can you command an attitude or a state of mind? That will lead us to further questions like love of Hashem. Right? It's also a mitzvah, just like it's a mitzvah to fear Hashem. It's also a mitzvah to love Hashem. How can you command love? How can you command an attitude or a state of mind? How can you, let alone love, which is, has a rich emotional content or overlay, how can you command a state of mind? How can you command belief? If you don't believe, what are you supposed to do? Tell yourself that you do? That's surely, that's surely not belief. So how can you command belief? That, that needs to be, it's a difficult question. That needs to be understood. You know, what's interesting is that the first of the Ten Commandments, which correlates with this, does not state a commandment to believe. The first of the Ten Commandments, and this is the very beginning of an answer, obviously, the first of the Ten Commandments, which states Hashem's existence, simply states His existence. It does not say like the others do, you shall do this or you shall not do that. It simply says, Anoich Hashem Elokecha, I am Hashem. I am God. Right. We'll have to understand more deeply why that commandment is not phrased as a commandment. Yet it is. It's, the, it's, a, it's, a, it's a well-known debate between the early authorities, in fact the Rambam himself and others, about whether that is the first of the mitzvahs, or it's a precursor to all the mitzvahs and subsumes all of them. There's a debate about whether the first of the mitzvahs, whether this statement, I am Hashem, is a commandment to believe, but not phrased as a commandment, or it's not phrased as a commandment because, in fact, it's not a commandment. It's the basic territory within which commandments can be given. That, the, the two positions are this. The first commandment is that relating to Hashem, to believe in Him, and from there all else follows. Why is it not phrased as a commandment? needs to be discussed. The second attitude is that that is not a commandment. It is just the just. It is the, the foundation or the, um, the space, if you like, within which commandments exist. You can't deal with commandments unless you have related to a commander. But unless you've accepted that he is, you can't talk about commandments. And therefore, before you can say, thou shalt, right? how can you even say, you shall believe in me, if I don't yet 
believe in you. First, the, the fact of his existence has to be established before commandments. Right? Obviously, these two attitudes overlap each other, and we, we need to think them through. But that is where it begins. So, with this strange or paradoxical or chimeric notion of Hashem's existence being before commandments and being the first of the commandments, let's see if we can try and get a bit of clarity on that, that very, that very, this very difficult area. And hopefully, out of the discussion will come a, a deep understanding of how this can be commanded, if it is commanded, and... and it's certainly an obligation, whether it's phrased as a commandment or not, whether it's a precursor to the mitzvahs or not, it is certainly not only an obligation, but it's the root of all the Torah's commandments, and more specifically, it's the root of all positive commandments. Every time you fulfill a positive command, or more accurately, every time you fulfill any commandment, you're also fulfilling this one. Because obviously, any time you obey a commandment, you're also asserting your belief in the one who commands, right? And therefore, it subsumes all the others. Now, the avenue of access to this... Now, we have to do some very hard work together because obviously when you're talking about the root of everything that it is that we're required to relate to and to follow, obviously we're dealing with a very challenging area. Right? This is not just a detail. This is really this is really everything. So, let's try and put our heads into it. Many, many difficulties. I mean to make matters worse, we live in a generation, in a context where this is very unpopular. Belief, especially what's regarded as blind belief, has a very fundamentalist, you know, non-intellectual connotation, and it makes the Western mind uneasy. And what passes for belief is very often simply, you know, a bamboozled, superstitious attitude. I mean, it's not, it's a very, very difficult place to be. So let's ask a few questions about the, about the notion of emunah of belief and see if, we can, see if we can work out something together. First of all, this thing that we call emunah, that we call what we translate in English as, as faith, if it means belief, right, or, or, or faith, the, the connotation in English of that is um, something blind, something that you cannot know. Now when you say you believe in something, you don't mean something that you know. Because if you knew it, you wouldn't believe. Again, there's a conflict here between the concepts of knowledge and belief, right? Let's, let's get that clear. If you know something, you don't believe in it. Right? In English, the concept of belief specifically relates to that which cannot be known. What's on the other side of that wall is a question of belief, because I can't see it. But what's on this side of the wall is a question of knowledge. I don't believe that you're sitting in front of me. It's an inappropriate word. Right? I say as far as I can know anything, that is what I know. So the question becomes this. If belief is unknowable, if you require to believe, meaning to relate to something that's ultimately unknowable, what sense does it make? What sense does it make? Why should I do that? If you can't prove it to me, if there's no, if there's no fundamental proof, then many problems arise. One is, why should I believe in it? On what grounds are you going to tell me? I'm, I'm a person beginning in my, my Jewish exploration. I'm a child. And you tell me I'm obliged to believe in God, and I don't yet believe. So on what basis should I believe? If you can't demonstrate it to me, then on what, notion, what basis should I believe? Let's put it even more strongly. Let someone comes up with a competing claim, and they say, well, no, you should believe in this. And they can't prove that either. Well, why is yours better than theirs? If you can't demonstrate yours, and, and, and you know, degrees of demonstration aren't really relevant here. In mathematics, if a proof is not 100%, it's not a proof. In logic, if something is a 99% proof, it's not a proof. It may be you know, interesting, it may be uh, worth studying further, but it's not a proof. So if you can't demonstrate what it is that you... So then why should you believe, to put it even more bluntly, in Judaism? Right? If, even if you're Jewish. If there's a competing claim from some other quarter, which is also not based on... Are you going to tell me that ours is more logical? Well, what exactly does that mean? On the contrary, maybe if belief is related to that which cannot be known, it's better to go for the least logical. Maybe that's a bigger, maybe it's a bigger act of, of belief there. <coughs> maybe choose the most difficult, because then you cut out, you show that it's not due to vested interests. Maybe you should, I mean, there's all sorts of ways it becomes very confusing. On the other hand, if I claim to know this thing, if I can demonstrate to you, if I claim that if you go through a certain course of investigation and study, you'll come to know this thing firsthand. You'll know that Hashem exists, you'll know that there's a higher world, you'll know it in as secure a sense as you know anything else then why talk about faith? 
then the point that we should be talking about here is knowledge. Can you see there's a, there's a problem here? <coughs> so let's try to define the correct attitude to this. The Jewish attitude is as follows. That at the first level, there's one more problem as well, of course. And that is that since in other languages, like in English, we translate this notion as belief, meaning relating to that which is essentially unknowable. Even if we claim that that notion is completely false, all things that are misrepresented, all Torah notions that are misrepresented in the non-Jewish world, the non-Torah world, have a spark of truth in them. Because they wouldn't have been mistranslated like that if there wasn't some place, some seed somewhere. And not only that, they wouldn't have survived. And since, the, since our concept in Western thinking is that faith is an unknowable thing that you sort of personally attach yourself to. Although that's not logical, there must be some truth in it somewhere. So, where is the truth in that? How can this thing be knowable and yet unknowable? So let's work it through like this. The Jewish attitude is <coughs> that our, our concept is that Hashem's existence <coughs> is as knowable as anything else that you care to relate to with knowledge. Yet it can be known. How it can be known needs discussion. There are, there are two consequences of this. That means, if we say we choose between these two options, knowing his existence in some way is impossible, then the discussion ends. Because if you choose then to believe, you believe. If you don't, there's nothing I can really argue with you. And the discussion ends. If we say, however, that his existence is knowable, that it can be derived, proved, demonstrated, whatever criteria we'll, we'll, we'll use, then the question becomes twofold. One, how do you demonstrate his existence? That's a legitimate Jewish question. Because we don't have direct contact, especially not now in a post-prophetic age. There's no miracles or prophetic revelations. And secondly, and secondly, if you can demonstrate it, then what's faith? Why use the word emunah? Are you very hot? Yeah. Don't they want to switch on the back air conditioner? They want to. They want to, but it's going to make too much noise, I hope. Not the fan air conditioner. Don't they want to? They usually have the back one on. Don't you want the, do you want the back air conditioner? Yeah. Thanks, Bruce. Appreciate it. No, you can up the place if you want. Okay. Thanks. Okay, right, let's try again. <laughs> Okay, this is a difficult enough subject at the, the best of times and we need, we need to concentrate and I'll speak fast, okay? <laughs> we got two questions facing us, okay? One is, if it's knowable, how do you get to know it? And two, if you do that, what is the concept of emunah? So let's uh, try and answer about those questions, at least in overview. The first is, and hopefully us, our, our other question will also be answered, of what is the meaning of something that is knowable and yet unknowable. The first principle is like this. We claim that direct <coughs> contact with this higher existence is possible. The ultimate method is no longer available to us. That applies only in a generation of prophecy, right? And most specifically, the generation that left Egypt and had direct contact with Hashem's existence. There's a point worth noting here, and that is that people think that the Sinai experience was the, the um, sort of point of, mac point of definitive, you know, the red line, in you know, a critical mass. Sinai was not that. Right? Again, people think that and it's often superficially presented that the Sinai experience, when the Jewish people stood at Sinai and met Hashem, met God directly, that settled once and, once and for all, as it were, our belief in His existence. The truth is that you can see quite plainly that long before we stood at Sinai, namely in Egypt, when all the plagues were taking place, that was certainly adequate proof 
The, no, the reason we know that was adequate proof is because the Egyptians were expected to come to terms with this and they never stood at Sinai. In other words, the experience of those types of miracles, right, predicted that Moses told the people before and what would happen. They lived through the ten plagues. They witnessed his prophetic utterances and saw them fulfilled. The plagues were miraculous. <coughs> they, were, they, were, they, were, they were not only miraculous, they were miracles within miracles, right? For example, the hail contained ice and fire together. Right? What did Sinai do that that didn't do? You see that the claim was, and Hashem, the, the Torah makes explicit, that the Egyptians were expected to relate to Hashem and change their ways, but because of the proofs that they were given in Egypt, long before Sinai. And therefore it's quite clear that that is an adequate level of experience to know that something, there's something here more than meets the eye. Sinai needs to be discussed separately, but in a nutshell, what it was for us was not a, an experience of more established proof. But we didn't stand at Sinai and meet God, meet Hashem personally, in order to prove to us that He exists. That had already taken place in, in, in the Egyptian experience, during the Exodus and prior to that, and at the splitting of the sea. On the contrary, it says that at the splitting of the sea, the lowest of the Jewish people saw more than the highest prophet ever saw subsequently. Now they saw all, through all seven layers of the spiritual world. What Sinai did was an entirely different thing. What Sinai did was establish for us the nature of our relationship with Hashem. Its intensity and its special nature. It was not to establish the fact that He exists. What the Egyptians had, right, that we had, was a connection with His existence. What they did not have, that we had, was a completely different relationship with Him that no other nation has or ever will have. Right, which is that, that particular brand of closeness, that particular brand of closeness and responsibility, which is what it means to be Jewish. And that's what Sinai established. It's true that we met him personally there and heard him speak personally, as it were, as opposed to see miraculous proofs beforehand. It's true that that's a much higher voltage, but both of them are above the critical mass, above the red line. And therefore, Sinai is a whole completely different story, and perhaps when we get to understand the fundamental principle of the so-called chosenness of the Jewish people and its corollary, which is genuine anti-Semitism, we'll, we'll be able to understand that a bit more deeply. So let's go back to our main track. What is the proof of Hashem's existence? One, having met Him or seen proofs of His existence. That doesn't apply today anymore. The second is so-called scientific derivation. Now, that means that we say, and all our classic sources say, the Rambam himself deals with it all the way to the Kuzari, which is written only a few hundred years ago, that an objective examination of the world will yield the conclusion that it has a creator. Now, of these two lines of thinking, which is the more reliable? The first. That means going back to Sinai and beyond. Right? If you ask, formally from a Jewish perspective, what is the best proof that we have, or what's the fun, fun, fundamental pillar on which knowledge of Hashem's existence rests in our generation? It's the transmission by our forefathers throughout the generations of what happened at Sinai. Right? That's a definitive statement of how we know it. You realize immediately that that brings into existence two elements. One is what Sinai and all the miraculous events around then were. And secondly, can we trust the transmission throughout history? That's another problem. Okay? Those both have to be discussed. And then there's the second element, which is the so-called objective or scientific reading of the world. Without great detail, let's just cover those only in outline for this evening. We, we want to get specifically to the work of Emona, which is, which is beyond this. But let's just, without doing full justice to them, let's just point out the direction. The first is the experience that the Jewish people had of meeting Hashem personally. And added to that, the veracity of the transmission of, that, of those events throughout history. This we can't examine fully this evening. There are many books, not only the classics and translations of the classics, but there are modern works as well. You're welcome to... I'm happy to make the references available. Some are available here. And you can think these, these things through together. Perhaps the central, most recent work is the Kuzari, which goes through the historical argumentation, what's called the historical verification of these things, examines the notion of the plausibility of its having been um, fabricated, examines that openly. Professor Gottlieb has a book on the subject which, which goes into very great detail. And you can explore that subject, you know, to, your, to the level that, 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 that you feel you, you'd like to. 
But in outline, the subject is, the structure of it is, we met him and we can trust the transmission. Now, we need to examine what that meeting was and how we know we can trust the transmission. It's a question, it's a valid question, needs to be established. The second area, the second area, which is less reliable, but also valid, is that if you examine the world objectively, you come up with the conclusion that there's something that transcends the world. This is most famously known as the argument from design. There are many ways of doing this, and you'll find these arguments not only in Jewish sources, but in secular philosophy, dealing with the possibility of the notion of God's existence, what are the proofs that have been attempted and set up. These are well-known arguments. I'd just like to point out one feature of these discussions, because that is critical for our understanding of the faith dimension. And that is that, if you examine all the arguments that are purported to be proofs of a higher existence, they all have one common characteristic, and that is they're all proofs by exclusion. Okay? They're not proofs by derivation. Let's just understand the significance of that. You know, in logic, there are two forms of proof. One is proof by derivation, and one is proof by exclusion. Proof by derivation means you take something that you can derive and demonstrate, and once that's firmly established, you use it to establish a more complex theorem or, or, or theory. Right? When that's established, you then, and you can proceed building on more fundamental issues, more complex issues. That's how you derive the complexity that you hope to reach. The other and equally valid method of demonstration of proof in logic is to prove a thing by exclusion. The nature of that is, you say, either A or B must be true, assuming that there are only two possibilities. I can't begin to approach A. I can't derive it or prove it. But I can show that B is false. If you can show that B is false when there's only A or B possible, you can surely de- you have surely demonstrated that A is true. I mean, do you accept that? That's a basic technique in, in maths or in logic. All proofs of Hashem's existence are that kind of proof. They don't attempt to derive it. They attempt to show it by exclusion. Let's just take uh, uh, the obvious example, the argument from design. The famous argument from design, which you find in many non-Jewish sources as well as Jewish sources, the Talmud has examples of this, and virtually all generations thereafter have embellished it. And, um, you know, in in, in the non-Jewish world, the famous name attached to this is William Paley, an 1800s uh, (coughs) minister, as it happens. His argument was, if you're walking in a, in a wasteland and you find a watch, a, a, a watch, a clock, one of these, these things, you would immediately know that somebody had left it there. It would never enter your head that it had put itself together by accidental, you know, movements of, of wind and... That's just inconceivable, right? It would be as sure a declaration that a human being had been there, intelligent designer had been there, right, as having seen an intelligent designer yourself. Because it's inconceivable that something with this level of complexity could have got put together by, its, by itself. Now the world's complexity, or even a small part of the natural world, is so much more complex than this thing, that it should be equally clear that it didn't do itself. Okay? One of the most famous uh, expressions of this in the, in the modern age is Fred Hoyle, is a Nobel Prize winning physicist, British physicist. His famous statement is that, he, he, he puts it this way, the formation of one enzyme one enzyme by accident, with all the favorable conditions that the evolutionary biologists try to set up, he said is far more likely, is, is, is far less likely, incredibly less likely, than a tornado sweeping through a junkyard and assembling a 747. Now that means if you had a junk in a junkyard, and you had a tornado, and, and, and has left the junkyard, you had a fully formed 747, right, is absolutely inconceivable. One enzyme, right, that, that, unlikelihood pales into insignificance in the face of one enzyme, with all the assumptions that the evolutionary biology makes. Therefore, when you see a world that's organized, you see one enzyme, or you see one molecule or one atom, you are required to believe, to understand that somebody made it. That's the argument from design. I mean, there are perversions of this argument. I hesitate to mention names because... But there is a, there's, a, there's a present-day professor at a certain university not so far from here, just west of here. <laughs> 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 who 
who's written a series of books disproving evolution, so-called. He's a, he's a professor of the public... The public... Uh, he's, he's the, the, nature, the, the designation of his chair is professor of the public dissemination of... He, his professorship is not in the science itself, although no doubt he is an expert, but it's in the public um, teaching or dissemination of that wisdom. And he's a very articulate writer, and he writes books on... Um, why evolution cannot, why evolution must, did I say disproving? Proving evolution and disproving any religious, uh, disproving any religious option or alternative. The way, in one of his most famous books, he says that, he says that what we need to explain is complex structures. Uh, when you see complex things like animals or biological systems in general or enzymes, etc., those are so complex they could not have, he says, they could not have arisen by themselves. Therefore, we need to invoke some mechanism of their having come into existence, and the mechanism he claims is evolution. Right? But you know, we well know, as I do, evolution only deals with biological structures. For example, one of the critical problems with evolutionary theory is it doesn't explain how biological structures arose in the first place. For example, genes. Once you have genetic, a genetic mechanism, evolution postulates a means by which genes, through natural selection, could have mutated and evolved into what there is today. How do genes arise? How did genes arise in the first place? But more than that, how did biological material arise in the first place from inanimate... Right? So he deals with it like this. He says that all that needs to be understood is complex structures. Simple structures don't need to be understood. Simple structures. Simple things don't need explanation. All you need explanation for is complex things. Because complex things don't do themselves. But simple things, simple things could have just been there. So he says, and therefore you don't need to deal with things like the moon. He says. The moon's a simple thing, so he says. The moon's simple. It's not complex. The man just lost his head. <laughs> I mean, one molecule of whatever the moon's made of. Do you know one molecule of, of, of matter? You know, it's in one atom. The other secrets that they're unlocking in one atom. The forces that hold the nucleus, I mean, they're stupendous. That doesn't need explanation. The physicists, his friends, he's a biologist, his friends, the physicists, are driving themselves crazy these days. Literally driving themselves insane with the miracles of, of quantum mechanics and how the parts of the atom hold themselves together. The unfathomable mysteries there. But he says, well, those are simple things. You don't have to explain that. They just are. Now let's get busy explaining the complicated things like amoebae and worms and <laughs> professors of biology. Those are complicated. So... Everyone agrees, even the biggest enemies of religious thinking, that complex things need explanation. They do not arise by themselves. They, they don't claim that complex things arise by themselves. They need a mechanism. And therefore, the simple <coughs> phrasing of the argument from design is, if you see a complex structure, it implies that it was designed. A designed object implies a designer. Okay? But listen carefully. What's important to grasp about this argument is that it's an argument by exclusion. Do you see the designer? You don't see the designer. The argument goes like this. Organized things don't happen by themselves. Right? That means, is this world that you look at a random, chaotic place? Is one atom random or chaotic? Or is it incredibly, exquisitely machined? Right? And precisely... Well, it's certainly not random. So then if the world's not a random place, if the world's a highly organized place, and organized things don't do themselves, what's the conclusion? Somebody or something must have done it. Do you understand? But it's an argument by exclusion. It's not we derived Hashem's existence. All we said was, there's a structure here that doesn't seem to have done itself. Implying, okay, now, there's one feature of arguments by exclusion that, are, that is essential to grasp, and it's this. The big difference between an argument from derivation and an argument by exclusion is this. When you derive a thing, when you come to know something by derivation, you understand it. When you, deri when you prove something by exclusion, you just as surely know it's true, but you haven't got a clue what it means. Do you understand? If I take B, I have A or B, and I choose to derive A, I'm able to derive A from its first principles, and finally I arrive at A, I understand what A is. After all, I've built it up from its components. But if I can't prove A, all I can do is disprove B. So once I've knocked out B, I'm absolutely convinced that A is true, but I have no idea what A is. All proofs of God's existence, all proofs of Hashem's existence, are proofs by exclusion. That any alternative is unsupportable, weak, 
incredibly statistically unlikely, etc., etc., etc. But what it leaves you with is no knowledge at all of what he is. Is this clear? And that's where Emunah comes in. That's where, Emunah, that's where the faith dimension comes in. Faith doesn't mean believing without any basis. Okay? Are you with me? Relating to that which I do not know at all. But I know it must be so because I excluded the options. There's a faith dimension there. That means, you see, if you have personal contact with it, then you don't call it faith. That's knowledge. You have no personal contact with it at all. You have no point of contact with it. Only a knowledge that all the others are not possible. Then you have to turn around and say, I choose to move there. That's an act of faith. Let's try and think this through. Let's do it by, by stating the next step of our discussion, argument. We said that knowledge of the higher things is possible. And that's what we're saying this evening. I didn't say easy, not guaranteed, not without a lot of work, but we claim that one way or another it's, it's, it's achievable. So then our question was, second question, so what's faith? And the answer is that the notion of emunah is very, very badly translated as faith or belief. A much better translation than faith is faithfulness. The word emunah in Hebrew is derived from ne'eman, that same root. Right? The word amen, right? imun, ne'eman. That means faithful. Right? The concept there, the very rich connotations that that word has, relate not to belief blindly, but to being faithful to something. That means to, to be true, to be constant, to be attached to, to be committed to. Right? Something with a persevering tenacity. You know, the truth is that if you look through Scripture, all the times that the word emunah is used, it's not translatable as faith. For example, you remember that Moses, Moshe Ben had to hold his hands up in the war against Amalek? You remember that? When he held his hands up, we won the battle, right? And it says, Vahayu yadav emunah at Ba'ashemesh. His hands were emunah. You can't translate that as faith. His hands weren't faith. They were faithful. That's what it means. They stayed put. The word emunah, right, is ne'eman. It means doing, doing the job and staying with the job, even when it may look unlikely and even when it may look impossible. And even when it may look like the opposite is what's true. That's what loyalty is. Loyalty, loyalty is not... The quality of loyalty or faithfulness is measured exactly when it's difficult or impossible. It's not measured when it's likely and, and logical. Is that correct? And therefore, emunah means that once this knowledge is established, the question is, are you true to it? Are you faithful to it? Are you attached to it? Do you stay with it? Do you move in that direction? You see, the human condition is such that there's a gap between knowledge and action. We can know things are true, and yet live in non-faithfulness to those things. Right? That is where our problems arise. Our problem is, most of us think that if we could establish the fact, we'd be okay. If we'd only establish the fact, then we would live in accordance with the fact. But you see, patently, obviously, that our, our lives are not like that. Have you ever tried dieting? No? You're all too slim. Well, if you ever tried dieting, you'll know that you can have a goal in front of you absolutely clearly. It's not, that's not a question. You know exactly what you have to do. Does that mean you do it? You often surprise yourself very greatly. Right? And sometimes the thing can be absolutely clear and you act in complete discordance with the knowledge. You're not faithful to the knowledge. Knowing a thing is no guarantee that you live, you live, up, to that, you live up to it. The challenge, there are two challenges. One is to get the knowledge and the second is now that you know it, will you do it? Will you, be, commit, will you commit, commit to this thing? Right? People mistakenly think that if only I knew it for sure, I would automatically be committed. But it's not like that. Most of our problems in life are exactly with things that we know we should be doing. We have other problems too in the realm of doubt. That's another big issue. But do not think that if you had the knowledge, you'd be, you'd be automatically committed. It's not like that at all. Emunah means being attached to it, right? and going and staying with it. The example Rab Desley used to give was not dieting, but smoking. But we're talking men, you know, he died in 1954. Smoking was much more common, perhaps much more, much more widespread challenge. He described the experience of having to give up or giving up smoking. That a person knowing its, its problem and yet still being caught in that grip of a temptation where the knowledge, no matter how clear, is not enough. 
addiction, even physiological addiction, doesn't mean incapability. Doesn't mean, again, addiction simply means that there's a physiological component. It doesn't mean that there's no free choice. It, may, it means the free choice is much more difficult. But it doesn't mean there's no freedom. How extreme can a person's acting in discordance with their knowledge be? I think I once mentioned, I, I don't remember who is here at the time, but I once mentioned an experience I had personally with a, an extreme example of this was a patient I personally happened to be, a patient in a hospital I personally happened to be connected with, who was a man who had a genetic problem, which is not that uncommon. You see it, you know, it's not, it's not that uncommon to see. There are some people who have a genetic predisposition that sensitizes them to the nicotine in cigarette smoke. And these people, if they smoke, the consequence is that their blood vessels close down inexorably, and eventually they lose digits, they can lose limbs. Right? Those who have it in severe form, they can actually lose their limbs because their blood vessels close down, lose their blood supply to their... It's very common to see the, um, you know, the digits being lost, and they can actually lose limbs. If they stop smoking, it stops. I mean, it's that simple. Right? It's absolutely that simple. There's not a single case report. In fact, there's, there's not a single case report of a person with this particular disease who is not a smoker. Right? He was a very intelligent man. He was a 45-year-old, highly intelligent engineer, who knew at least as much about the illness as we did. They were for the days of the internet, but he had researched it thoroughly. He knew all the details. And he was smoking. Right? So he came into the ward about to lose his leg. And he was quite clear. And he was, he was not deranged. He was a highly intelligent individual. He knew that if he carried on smoking, he would lose his leg. He carried on smoking, we had to amputate his leg. The next time I saw him was a year later. He was being wheeled down the hospital corridor in a wheelchair with no legs, still smoking with a, a threatened arm. <laughs> now, now, you have to ask yourself, you know, what does this mean? I mean, here's an individual who knows exactly, right, knows exactly what's happening, and he can throw away that cigarette and live, be normal, walk, no? or he can carry on smoking, and pay this price. You see, the knowledge, and even the, even, the, even the motivation, that means knowing where he wants to be, and knowing how clear it is, does not stop him being disloyal to that knowledge. There's a moment of, of the Talmud says, the Gemara says, a moment of madness. <coughs> What's called Ruach Shlus, at the moment of trial, of ordeal, there's a, there's a grappling with the issue, should I smoke the cigarette or throw it away? And then at a critical moment, there's a moment of, 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 of allowed, tolerated blindness, insanity. That means you don't do this unless you would go through a moment of temporary insanity. Of course, you're guilty for that because you allowed yourself to become insane for that moment. With that moment of insanity, the thing is done and then when the dust settles, you realize right, that that's what happens. You find difficulty with this example because you think you're not a smoker and smokers are addicted. But if you've tried a diet and you sit there with a thick wedge of chocolate-filled cream... Uh, you know, laced, uh, you know, t- and you say to yourself, I'm not going to, that's, yeah, I don't know. See, my self-respect and my image and my, you know, it's much too important, I'm not going to, that's, a ten-year-old wouldn't fall for that. And about two and a half seconds later, you're looking at a plate that is not, you know, not, 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 not crumbs, you know, but like, Polished. <laughs> so, the question is, well, how, what are you going to tell me? Addiction? What do you want to tell me? Addiction to the point of involuntary, you know, psychotically deranged. What, what? That's what happens. What happens is you look at this thing while you're sane, and suddenly there's a moment of insanity. Complete insanity. Detachment. Complete dissociation. And then when you come to your senses again, but you allowed it. You allowed it to happen. Emunah means, it doesn't mean belief. Emunah means ne'eman. It means being loyal to that, knowing it and keeping it clear all the time and staying with it. That's what it means. And therefore, we don't translate emunah as faith. We translate it as faithfulness. That means, step one, get the knowledge. And of course, while you're getting the knowledge, and it appears more and more likely by an objective study of what Torah has to say, so then to that extent, one should be more and more hesitant about doing things that are, that are not acceptable. One should become more and more loyal. Until eventually one arrives at a status of whatever degree of certainty you need. What level of statistical guarantee would you like right, to, make action, to make action appropriate? When you get to that stage, action becomes appropriate. Now, you think it's guaranteed that you'll take that? No, not guaranteed at all. 
Not at all guaranteed. And that's the test of greatness. The test of intellectual greatness, of wanting to know, that's how, how, how doggedly you pursue the attempt to get the knowledge. The, the measure of character greatness is after the knowledge has been gained, after clarity is gained, the measure of character greatness is how tightly do you stay attached to that. And that's what we mean by Munah. Let's try and just add one more layer to this and, and we'll, we'll stop there. Where is the blindness? What is the nature of this blindness? Where, where do they get that notion from? Why do they translate it as a leap of faith, as blind? Where, where did it come from? If it's that simple that it's simply getting the knowledge, go to a few lectures, go to, go to these seminars at which they demonstrate right, the, the impossibility of Torah, Torah being false. There's some very convincing presentations you can go through. There are some organizations that... I don't know if you've been on some of these seminars. There are modern organizations that specialize in putting across very convincingly a number of things that are extremely difficult to, to, um, to falsify or to, what do you say, to, uh, to disprove, right? That's the first step. The second step is after you get to that level of awareness, then there's a measure of character, which is you attach yourself to it. So where's the blindness? But the truth is as follows. And this also is badly misunderstood. There is no absolute proof. Let's get that clear. There's no absolute proof. The most sophisticated seminar you can go to, the deepest study of the Kuzari and all those works, there's no 100% proof. There's always enough of a gap. There's always enough of a gap to allow temporary insanity when it suits you. That means, don't ever be fooled when people say to you, I can prove it to you. Right? The level of proof that's being discussed here is not absolute. The philosophers will tell you that there's no absolute proof of anything. There's always an accepting of an axiom that comes before whatever evidence that you want to prove. And that's true. That's true. There's no doubt that you can raise yourself to a level of very secure, in statistical terms, very secure knowledge that the alternatives are untenable. But 100%? No. There's always the work of the heart that, that, that leads you to say, Although it's only in my mind 99 or 99.9, right, I'm not going to take that 0.1% that allows me to become temporarily insane. There's always that possibility. Let's face it, you don't see this in front of you and, and ex- experience it tangibly. In a prophetic age, the ordeal is a different one, but we're not in a prophetic age. In our age, it's not... The truth is, even in a prophetic age, there's no 100% proof. Because even witnessing a prophetic experience, you could... It's false prophecy, after all. There's, there's, there's this way out, there's that way out. It's not 100%. And let me share with you the way it expresses itself. The way it expresses itself is that you can start with knowledge, but the, the imperative that moves you in the direction that the knowledge suggests, there's always a darkness. Right? Let me try and explain it this way. The, 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 um, the faithfulness that is required to move to the destination there's always a blindness as to the destination. Try and put it this way. When people are tested in faith, which means tested in the degree of their attachment to these things, the test is always built, the classic Jewish test is built in such a way that the knowledge of the origin and what must be done is clear. But where it will end up and what it means is always unknown. When they talk about a leap of faith and a leap into the unknown, it's correct. The classic exposition, the classic um, perhaps example of this, is if you look back to the classic ordeals in, in, in Torah and Scripture, take Abraham, Avram Avinu, for example. So when he's told to go on his journey, journey, journey of self, right? Lech Lecha, go to you. The way the Torah expresses it is, Hashem says to him, Lech Lecha, very, very clearly, talking about prophetic instruction, you can't ask for more than that. So where's the blindness in his act? Hashem says, go from your father's house, from your birthplace, from your land, to the, land, to the place, Ela'aretz, the land, Asher Ar'echa, that I shall show you. Where he's going is blind. The nature of the, the Jewish nature, the Jewish notion of the leap of faith is, that leap you must. That, that you don't leap off into a darkness, into an abyss, where the other side is clouded and you can't see it, without very, very solid motivation. It needs at least the same statistical assurance that stepping out onto a plank or leaping across some chasm in your you know, judgment that you can make it or the fact that there is another side there or that the ground that appears there is solid, at that degree, when I take another step, how do I know that the ground that I see 
is genuine and solid. Maybe it's an illusion. Maybe it's just a clever... Is it 100%? No. But there's enough security in the degree of knowledge that I have to make it... Right? That, that degree of security can be there in the knowledge that I have to leap. But where I'll end up on the other side is blind. Hashem says to him, go, you must. Where to? I keep that hidden. Aaretz Asher Areka, the land that I will show you when you get there, but not before. Why didn't Hashem tell him where he was going? Because our notion of a test is, the fact that you set out on this journey, to do it because you just bamboozled yourself into a personal notion. You know, the world's view of faith is that it's personal. I choose to believe. You can't argue with that. You want to believe something else? That's fine. Isn't that the attitude? uh, Let's be tolerant, right? You want to believe whatever you want, as long as you don't harm me or anybody else. Believe whatever you want. I believe this. See, not you saying that what you believe in is completely a figment of your imagination. It doesn't really matter. That's not, that's not Torah. Torah is what we talk about believing in. It has to be real. It has to be objective. If I allow you to believe something else and I give you the same credit as I want you to give me in my belief, then I'm actually saying that neither of us has anything objective. Both of us are really functioning in what, what makes us happy. We don't say that. We say to every non-Jew on earth that he has to believe what we believe. We're tolerant of his doing different styles. Right? Provided that the styles are consonant with what Hashem wants. On the contrary, we don't look for converts. But we're not tolerant of any belief. The problem is that religion is seen to be a subjective experience. So you want to believe whatever you want. You can believe that it's this or that or the other. That's just as silly as saying, right? Well, I believe that this medicine is going to affect me in this particular way. Let's be tolerant. You believe it will do this. You believe it... You you must be badly mistaken. That chemical, if you take it, is going to do a certain objective thing to you. The spiritual world is every bit as objective as the physical world. It's not a figment of imagination that's subject to what you believe. There's a fact there. But, that relating to the fact does not tell you what the next step will be. And therefore the phrasing is, leave, and I'm giving you clear instruction that that you must leave. But where you leap to and what you will become is essentially blood. What's the reason for this? The simple childhood or child, you know, the child's level of answer to that question is test, to make a test possible. If the point of departure and the point of destination were both clear, where would be the test? Therefore, Hashem tests you this way. He says, here's a point of departure that's absolute. The question is, point of destination, blind. So you test it. Will you follow it through even though it's unknown? But there's a much deeper understanding here and that is that the result of faith, the result of correct emunah, is that you reach a place that you could never have seen before. You could never have seen that before. And the reason is because the place you reach is you. The place you reach is the greater you, the more mature, the more expanded version of yourself that you could never have seen while you were the shrunken version. Again, this journey of faith, as much as it's a journey towards Hashem, it's a journey, a journey towards the self. You can't project what you will be before you are. I see a disturbing number of very blank... You're just taking it on faith, right? (laughs) You're talking about a journey to a greater self. To a level where things will be known to you that at present are taken only on faith, right? Assumption, maybe. How can you possibly begin to see what that is before you're there? No? The answer is this. The only way you can ever move to, be a, to a greater version of yourself is when you prepare to relinquish the level that you're at now. You have to leap without knowing what you'll be. Because unless you leave where you're, secure on, where you're secure now, if you live in a world of your secure notions, the world is, you're secure, the world is the way it is, and you're happy in it, and you, you're not, you have no courage to move beyond your limitations. Well, then you'll never be anyone different. You can't expect to get to the new unlimited situation while you still maintain your limits. The heroism and the requirement for the process to be blind is that you have to be prepared to break what it is that you are without yet knowing what you will be. That's a heroic act of moving into a blind zone. The fact that you know you have to do it can be clear. But what it means and what you will... If a person is caught in a prism, a glass prism, and you want to show them white light, so you shine strong white light on them, but every time the light impinges on the prism, it keeps breaking up into its colors. No amount of shining white light on them is ever going to demonstrate it until they break the prism. Only when they shatter their world of, their world of perception. Only when you shatter your world of perception can you have a new perception. If you keep, if you keep trying to gain new perceptions in your old world of structure, they can keep getting distorted. 
Is this clear? If you take a child and try to explain a sophisticated notion to a child, the child will not get a sophisticated notion. They will get a very, very childish, ridiculously distorted view of what you're trying to tell them because they're shrinking it into the... They only have a certain place to put it. They can only get it wrong. And therefore Hashem says, go to, the, go to the greater person you will be. But the only way you can do that is it's blind for you now. You have to move into the, you have to move into the abyss. You have to move into the, that which is blind. You know, one of the emotional components of this, I don't know if you've ever had this discussion, but sometimes you enter a discussion with somebody who claims to be a completely secular thinker. And they accuse you, they accuse the religious mode of being a blinkered, narrow, robotic you know, safe option. Your life is all mapped out. You just do these ritualistic, you know, things. You don't have to think about it. There's no... But me, the secular individual, I'm on a heroic journey of discovery. Right? I go wherever the truth leads. I'm unafraid. You go along these blinkered tracks. You don't have any work to do emotionally, intellectually. Can you see this discussion? You have to understand that the truth is exactly the opposite. It's so important to know this. The truth is exactly the opposite on both counts. The, the spiritual journey is a journey of going into the unknown. It's not going along the blinkered tracks and a narrow, robotic, cloned, ritualistic activity. You can do that, by the way. You can be a very good groupie. You can be a very good robotic groupie in Torah, just like you can anything else. If you want to be a robotic groupie, be one in, in Torah. Okay? <laughs> you shouldn't be. And the truth is, that's not Torah and that's not Judaism. But at least, at least be there, right? Because at least you're going to do what's right. You may be a zombie, but at least, you, you, at least you'll be a right zombie. <laughs> but that's not what we're talking about. The spiritual, path invo- is what the spiritual path involves the heroic ability to break out of where you hold now, even though it is a fe- it's a fearsome thing. It's a fearful and frightening thing. Where will you be? Who will you be? I'm not just talking about the simple level of uh, the Balchuva who who has to... D- deny and, 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 and forsake a level of, of friends and social activities and family <coughs> relationships, that itself is a heroic thing. Often it's very traumatic. Very traumatic. A person has to, what for? What will the future hold? Where will be my social and emotional security? Where will I be? It can be a very hero- heroic pathway. But I'm talking much more deeply than that. Talking about within the pers- personal inner world. There has to be a, a preparedness to relinquish yourself, not only social relationships and activities and entertainment and family relationships and those things, if necessary. I'm talking about the inner journey where you have to be prepared to relinquish who you were before without knowing who you will be. That's a very frightening thing. That's the real spiritual journey. The secularist thinks that the religious individual is going along this blinkered path. There are many so-called religious individuals who do that, but that's not the intention. But let's look at his claim. His claim is that being a secular thinker, he's prepared to go wherever the truth leads. Right? Is that so? If the truth really leads him to a spiritual option, is he prepared to go there? No, no, he's defined himself already. He's, defi- he's a secular person after all, isn't he? Do you know what he's done this individual? He's carefully circumscribed the borders of the playing field. Right? And defined them as only that which he can relate to in terms of his own intellect and his own finite understanding. He's defined out of existence the spiritual infinite option. And within that narrow field that is defined, he says, I'm prepared to go anywhere. That's what he's saying. I'm prepared to go wherever the truth leads. Of course, not, not into what you feel the truth is. Only, I'm only prepared to go as far as I'm allowed to define the truth. That's not blinkered and narrow. A real seeker for the truth should be prepared to say, well, it appears to me that the borders are here and here, but if I push the limits and I see the borders are more, I'm prepared to go there. You can't define yourself as a non-spiritual, secular, you know, you can't define that possibility out of existence and then claim that you're open to all, all wherever the truth leads. The real grasp of the spiritual path is that it, it is a heroic path. It is a path of preparedness to go where the truth leads because the truth leads there, but wherever it leads you have to go. And that is a blind zone, and it has to be blind. The result, of course, is that there's a newfound, a new... And of course, what you do when you get there, you have to be prepared to sacrifice that again. There's no end point that's secure, that you've made it. It's not like that. In summary, let's, let's wrap it up like this. The first four of the Ikrim relate to the notion of Hashem's existence. We didn't split it up into its elements of His oneness, 
His existence, His oneness, His transcending time, being before time began. We said, let's look at all these four things. What is our obligation of relating to this? It is what we call faith, badly called faith, but we mean emunah. Emunah means that establishing of this as a fact, and then one's attachment to that in this journey. Is there a blindness? There absolutely is. On two counts. Can you really establish it absolutely clearly? No. Can you establish it clearly enough that it's worth acting on? Absolutely. As clearly as any other physical fact in the world that cannot be fully known, but can be solidly enough known that you must act in accordance with that knowledge. Yes, that we claim you can. How's that done? Long discussion, long process of study. But it can be done. If it can be done, where's the faith element? The faith element is following that journey, following the journey of the study itself, and no matter how clear the conclusion is, there will always be the work of closing the gap. The work of closing that gap, of remaining loyal to this discovery, which is not a foregone conclusion. That is the beginning of the work of Imunah.